Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. Today, I will again be interviewing somebody who I think has the potential to improve, or at the very least inform, some aspect of your personal or professional life. If you want access to the show notes from this episode, please visit inthetrenches.net forward slash podcast. Within the show notes are a few things that I hope will be useful for you, including a list of all the questions that I asked, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discuss, which most frequently include books to read, and finally, a written transcript of our discussion so that you can download it to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Finally, if any of my episodes have provided you with something of value, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a quick rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast. It'll take you less than 30 seconds, and not only will your ratings give me valuable feedback, but more and better ratings help me attract better guests, which I ultimately hope will benefit you. Okay, let's jump into today's show. Hey guys, so today's episode is all about the various legal issues and considerations involved in selling a small to medium-sized business, many of which tend to be pretty unfamiliar to CEOs and entrepreneurs. Now, my guest today, Mario Negro, is one of Canada's preeminent M&A lawyers and currently serves as a partner in the M&A and private equity and venture capital groups at Steichman Elliott, based out of Toronto. Now, from a legal standpoint, Mario has basically worked with every type of stakeholder that there is within the SMB ecosystem. These include business owners, CEOs, entrepreneurs, strategic acquirers, private equity firms, banks, non-bank lenders, financial advisors, investment banks, deal intermediaries, and the list goes on and on, and regularly acts for both buyers and sellers in both majority and minority transactions. Now, we cover a lot of ground in our discussion today, and I tried to focus specifically on the most common blind spots that entrepreneurs and CEOs tend to exhibit when it comes to selling their companies. And some of these things include the most common reason why entrepreneurs overpay in taxes after receiving their deal proceeds, how entrepreneurs and CEOs should select their legal counsel when looking to sell their businesses and how much they should expect it to cost, whether LOIs should be detailed or generic and why, the circumstances under which buyers and sellers would prefer an asset sale or a share sale, the most frequent mistakes business owners make when negotiating reps and warranties, why rep and warranty insurance is growing as a useful tool for both buyers and sellers, how he deals with unsophisticated legal counsel that he sometimes encounters on the opposite side of a negotiation, the top three reasons why deals fall apart after an LOI is signed, and finally, how entrepreneurs and CEOs should think about their non-compete agreement, which is almost always part of a purchase agreement. Whew. Okay, let's get to the show. Please enjoy. Mario, welcome to the show. Steve, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've got a lot to cover today. Uh, And where I wanted to start is preparing for a sale, because I'd I'd like to kind of cover the entire sale process, starting with preparing for a sale, moving on to structuring the transaction, onto the transaction, the deal process itself. We'll talk about some major transaction risks and then conclude with post-transaction considerations. But 
before we get there, let's start about prepare. Let's start with preparing for a sale. So, most of the people listening to this episode are entrepreneurs or CEOs who might be looking to sell in some number of years in the future. So, based on your experience having guided entrepreneurs and CEOs through you know a countless number of these types of transactions, for people who are looking to sell in you know two years, three years, four years. What are some kind of basic things that you think these people should have in place today, well advance of a contemplated company sale? One of the areas where owner operators, I would say, leave money on the table. And, and literally, sometimes it's a substantive amount of money on the table in a sales process, is the fact that they don't do tax planning far enough ahead of the sale process. Uh, and frankly, what ends up happening is they say, well, you know, I never thought I was going to sell at that time. So I didn't think I needed to do it. And yet, yet the, the type of tax planning that can be super advantageous requires a long extended period in order to make it effective. And so I would say as a starting point, you know, one of the things that sadly uh, owner operators mistaken is if I'm getting ready for a sale, people think of it as like six months before a sale, three months before a sale, a year. No, in fact, some of the low-hanging fruit on effective tax plan requires a two-year window to set up the structure in order to take advantage of it. And this is this is the planning that's 101 is not aggressive. This is this is setting up, you know, very popular plan, setting up a family trust, creating beneficiaries for you and your family members who all could take advantage of the capital gains exemption up to the, you know, the, you know, it's around 900,000, but, and, and, you know, if you think about it, you know, the family, even if your parents, you, you know, four or five, six people, Steve, that's, you know, 900,000 times six is 5.4 million. Now you don't pay capital gains on 5.4 million. That's a million dollars right there. So you just, just literally you lose a million dollars by not doing the planning ahead of time. This is the place where if you don't give enough time, you need to, you need to create this two years before closing. There is no way around it. It needs two years. We, we can't legally find you a way to take advantage of this planning unless you set it up two years prior to closing. Right. So as a starting point, you know, it, it's just a shame, right? Like you get, people who could have easily spread out their, their, their proceeds to their family members and taken advantage of this, uh, you know, as you can see, very lucrative tax planning strategy. And it's just, a sh it's not expensive to do. It's, 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 you know, um, so tax planning is one as a general comment. I say to people, it's never, early, it's never too early uh, because there's other strategies out there that could be very effective in lowering your effective capital gains rate on the sale. And, and, you know, you're an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs don't want to pay tax. So the, 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 you know, the irony is that they think, oh, but I'm not selling. And you're, yeah, yeah, but look, at the end of the day, if you want to try to maximize whenever that day comes, you got to do tax planning now. Whether it's five years, whether it's 10 years, whether it, I'm, I'm never interested in a sale. I would still do tax planning because you never know. And frankly, if something happens to you, you want to think about your children and your, you know, you're the people who are going to take over this business if you're gone. So the next thing is, you know, people assume a sales process um, is a, is a kind of like a, a, you know, a box, you know, all oh, come on three, six months, the kind of thing. But, but what they forget is the, the box, which is the quote unquote technical sales process. That's just the process itself, but really smart sellers will plan ahead 
before they even start a process so they can take advantage of the process as opposed to letting the process define them. What I mean is, you know, you got a lot of companies, owner operators, they kind of run their books, their financial uh, financial record books it, in, in the way an entrepreneur does, right? Not very formal. It's not audited. It's kind of, listen, I get it. I don't want to spend money where I don't need to spend money. But the problem is, of course, now you want to sell your business for a premium to a buyer who, of course, is going to drill down on your financials because they got to make sure they're real if they're going to pay you a premium. And, you know, people who kind of have run their business, what I would say, whatever the word is, bootstrapped, you know, I don't want to spend too much money on, on financials. I don't want to worry too much about that stuff. I don't need to. I'm the only owner. They make a mistake by not giving themselves enough time to clean up their books. And I like to say, put a put a put a bow on it. And that's the one place particularly that you could do a lot of work ahead of time to put a bow on your business, but more important, even to putting a bow, you can find out if there's something wrong with your numbers that's going to show up later and affect your purchase price because the purchaser discovers it and says to you, you know what? I'm sorry, but your numbers aren't what you say they are. You'd rather know that stuff ahead of time. So you see, it's becoming very popular, even in the lower middle market, to do some type of, you know, uh, accounting prior to closing, people call it sell-side uh, diligence or, or uh, sell-side financials, where you spend a bit of time to clean up your record, but clean up your finance. And, and if you want to put it in simplistic terms, put a bow on it so that when you go to a buyer, you kind of show them, you know, books that are clean and ready for sale. Obviously, from a legal point of view, we always like to say, look, a buyer wants to see a clean business. You know, if you have customer contracts that are key to the business and you don't have them written down, you know, if you have employment co- employees who are key to the business and you got no no contracts, you should you should we call it paper up. You should make sure if you're if you're if you're relying on certain revenue streams, a buyer is going to want underlying documentation for those revenue streams. And you should spend the time before you even go to a process to clean that up. If you do the work behind the scenes to make your business ready for the sale. It will sell better, quicker, and for more money. And again, a place where owner-operators leave money on the table is the fact that they think the sale process starts when they hire an advisor to help them sell. Yeah, and and as someone who's been on both the buying and selling side as the kind of owner-operator, one way to kind of put a bow on the financials on your business, so to speak, is the type of engagement that you have with your accountants. So, you know, broadly speaking, there's kind of three types, the notice to reader, uh, the review engagement or the audit, um, each of which gets increasingly sophisticated um, and robust as you move down that list. And though paying, you know, an accounting firm anywhere between you know, fifteen to thirty thousand dollars, as was the case with my business per year for audited financial statements. You know, at times as an entrepreneur, you can kind of feel like you're not getting much value out of that kind of capital that's coming out of your pocket. But when it comes time for a sale, the financial due diligence, the questions that you have to answer, the documents that you have to pull, uh, are reduced substantially because they're um, in part relying on the uh, audit process as it relates to the robustness of your financial reporting. Agreed, Steve. The more you, you, you move towards audited, the more comfort you give a buyer. So let's move on to how to actually select uh, the counsel that you use on the legal side. So when you're selling a business, you, you have to hire generally a few folks to represent you. Of course, legal is kind of chief among them. So I guess kind of a, a two-part question for you. 
you know, part one, how do you recommend that a selling CEO selects their lawyer? Because there's, there's thousands of lawyers out there from which to choose. So how does a CEO even narrow down that list? And second, uh, legal is one of the larger costs that the seller will bear in selling uh, his or her business. So how should a selling CEO think about the cost of the, of the legal representation? And if, you know, obviously every engagement is different, so every price tag is different. So if we can't provide a range, how would you at least advise them to think about, you know, how do you put those kind of legal costs into some sort of context for someone who say has never sold a business before? Steve, uh, I would say that there are three key components. And, and this is a gen general comment about advisors. Uh, because if you think about the team that you have when you want to sell your business, and it is a team, it's your accountant, it's your lawyer, it's your sell-side advisor. That's the kind of key three people, the three uh, advisors. They're, they are bring their own teams. And, and so what I'm about to say is kind of my, my suggestion on approach is related to all three of them. You know, there are three key variables in selecting advisors. There's experience, there's fit, and there's price. The difficulty is that a majority of owner operators first focus on price and then focus on experience and finally focus on fit. Sadly, uh, the best case scenario works the other way. First focus on fit, then focus on experience, and then focus on price. And of course, the pushback to me is easy for you to say, Mario, you're the guy who wants to be paid not to focus on price. But the reality is, uh, Steve, in the lower middle market, in the middle right, it is so competitive amongst lawyers that frankly, all of us, when we're asked to bid, bid as though we know that there are other people in the process. We can't go crazy on you. So I get these owner operators and sometimes you get really uh, focused that, you know, you know, we're overly expensive. And, and, you know, I try to explain to them, look, at the end of the day, if I'm expensive compared to the other guy, I'm expensive by 10 or $20,000. So, for example, you get a $10 million transaction and you quote, you know, on the sales side mandate, you quote $100,000 or to one, one to 150, right? If, if I'm off, I'm off by 25,000. I'm off by 30,000. Frankly, even 50 seems too high. I'm usually off by 10 or 20. So you get an owner operator who then says, well, look, you're $20,000 more than that guy. And you're like, wait a minute, a $10 million decision, the most important financial decision of your life, you're going to come down to focusing instead of looking for experience and instead of looking for fit, you're going to worry about saving $10,000, $20,000. I, I can't change that. I've got sellers who I've worked with who get it and say, you're right. And I've got sellers who will literally say, I'm, I'm going to take the cheapest and I don't care. And even it's, it's not even so much the cheapest. Um, it's where they have a family lawyer or a local lawyer that they've grown up with. And they say, you know, he or she's given me a quote of 50, you're at a hundred. I see this a lot, you know, I know them, they'll take care of me. And I'm like, look, I don't do what they do, but they also don't do what I do. You know, those of us who do transactions, those of us who do sell side mandates, those of us who do the counting that's necessary for it, we, this is all we do. I do 40, 50 deals a year. Your local lawyer doesn't. 
So when you want to sell your company, it's kind of strange to have someone say, I trust my local person. And I get what they're really saying. I'm comfortable with my local person. My fit is what I have with my local person. And what I say to people is, you're right. Fit is key. So keep your local person, but get yourself an M&A lawyer who does this all day long. That's how you're going to protect yourself. Because if you don't, your local person, yeah, they might be cheaper by $30,000, $40,000, but they're going to cost you money because in the purchase agreement, I have literally worked with sellers, Steve, that miss hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I shake my head because it's not my job to tell them. I'm working for the buyer. But I just look back and think, you know, if they had gone to somebody who did this every day, I never would have been able to get that. And they just miss stuff that they, you know, in fairness, they don't know. It's the same point with sell-side advisors, you know. You get people who hire these brokers that, you know, really are not the right fit for this this type of company because they don't want to pay the fees for the sell, you know, the sell-side advisors that are used to doing these deals. And guess what? A very, as you know, Steve, a very good sell-side advisor creates competitive tension makes a deal get get for a seller more than they planned it's a huge difference in what a sell-side advisor could do you know you are you might have to pay him a hundred thousand dollars more but if he gets you an extra two million i mean that's a heck of a good investment you know yeah and same thing with accounts you know people use their local accountant who doesn't know how to do deals to help them on deal mechanics and they screw it up you know they screw up the working capital calculations and it's just you know people say you get what you pay for. In our world, you get what you pay for. And so I say to people, first, ask about experience. Second, ask about price. But make the decision in the end when those two are you're comfortable on fit. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that from the perspective of the CEO having gone through it a couple of times. I, I often, you know, in explaining to people kind of where to be frugal and where to kind of pay for quality, I often make the joke that like, Nobody goes to the discount eye surgeon willingly. Um, and I've actually been burned uh, by, um, you know, representation that wasn't great. And of course, that was not that was not with you, Mario, because I've, I've worked with you on both <laughs> buying and selling. But um, uh, another way of saying, as you said, you get what you pay for. So let's move on to actually structuring a transaction. And, and what I want to talk to you about is LOIs, because, you know, deals, you know, in, in some way, you know, one could argue that that kind of real process starts after an LOI is signed. But uh, LOIs are a little bit kind of controversial in that most of the terms contained within an LOI are non-binding, except for things like exclusivity and confidentiality. Um, But other than that, most of what is typically seen in a letter of intent um, is non-binding. And for that reason, some people say, look, LOIs are barely even worth the paper that they're printed on. And, and there's, I've kind of seen two approaches to LOIs in the past. One approach says, get the LOI as detailed as possible so you can get all the difficult negotiating points out of the way and done early in the process. Um, but the other part, um, the, the other group, I should say, says, look, LOIs are barely worth the paper that they're printed on. Agree on price exclusivity structure and confidentiality and just move on and save the key negotiating points for later. I guess, how should CEOs think about LOIs in that context? And are you a proponent of either of those philosophies? So, uh, you know, you said a very, Steve, you said it super well, like you, you really set out the tension. Okay. So 
the, the tension is that often the sell side advisor says, let's move quickly. Let's get to uh, uh, a purchase agreement. Let's not get too fussed on an LOI because uh, it's like you said, Steve, most of it is non-binding anyway. So why bother getting into the weeds of an LOI when, frankly, the stuff that counts is what's in the purchase agreement? Let's just push to the purchase agreement. And, and look, I'll be frank with you, there is some logic to that rationale in certain type of dynamics, you know? And where I would say is, I'm a seller, I have a super motivated buyer. I feel that the dynamic is in my favor. I know this buyer wants to move quickly. I get the sense there's an urgency. I like the price. I don't want to waste any time. You know, it's a very dynamic market. Stuff is going quickly. If you have an opportunity to sell quickly, you don't want to get bogged down with a lawyer on a legal term if it slows down getting a deal done quick, right? So there's a logic to doing it that way. The problem is that's a very minor situ situation. The majority times, in the, and I, I think this is where the CEO feels the tension. CEO is told, okay, look, this is how we normally do LOIs. Let's just punt a lot of these points. We'll deal with them later. Let's not get too bogged down. Of course, the problem becomes these are material points for a seller. Uh, so they are told, ah, don't worry, we'll, we'll figure it out later. And, and, and the thing is, I get this, you know, over these years, I've seen, Steve, a lot of owners, when they, when they get the LOI sign, they kind of think, okay, we've gotten over the really big humps. And so when people say we're going to punch stuff later, they forget to tell them, actually, there's a lot of big humps coming later. We got to get over too. We're just pushing them to late. Instead, they think, oh, okay, that stuff's all workoutable later. You know, they, and so they don't realize that the, everything you push to later involves a negotiation later. And frankly, could involve a negotiation where you and the buyer are not on the same page. And so the, the, the benefit and, and, the approach that I normally recommend, especially when I'm with sellers, is unless there's some overriding reason why we could we should push stuff to the future when it comes to key terms of the deal, we should negotiate them now in the LOI because you know what I'm an owner operator and I and I don't know uh, I don't have the experience that a buyer often has, and so you know what I want to know everything that's on the table. You know, I want to know what I'm agreeing to. And the problem becomes, I see, is a lot of processes kind of tell an owner operator, hey, you got a deal, you got an LOI. But the reality is you don't have a deal. You might have a deal on price, but you don't have a deal on all the other terms. And then when they come up later, the owner operator is kind of surprised and goes, wait a minute, I didn't, why are we fighting? You know, we're clearly not on the same page. And that's normal. That's, that's actually not on not unreasonable that, that happens you can't put everything in an LOI but an owner operator doesn't appreciate that right they think hey, this is great I got my price I'm ready to go actually it doesn't work that way as use a Marioism Steve you know before somebody gives you that price they want to look into the darkness of your eyes right you know as you know Steve they buyers will will well they're gonna go and prod everywhere and poke and and I think for a lot of owners that's a surprise um, and so I recommend a fulsome LOI very detailed for a seller so that you make their life easier later because it's, you know, what's the worst experience for a seller? You start getting down, ground down in a process. You're fatigued. This thing's starting to go on for four or five, six months. It keeps you away from the business. 
you, you know, it's going to affect your ability to even run your business because, you know, this, old, this buyer continually pushes on you. Your, your lawyer is your buyer, your advisor. The more you can knock out early, the better it's going to be for you later as a seller. The other thing I would say is that when buyers attempt to punt things later in the process and to your point, say, hey, we'll deal with that later, what the seller needs to understand is that when they say later, they're referring to a period of time under which um, you will be under exclusivity with them, meaning that you as the seller are not legally permitted to talk to anybody else. So from the buyer's standpoint, they'd like to punt things until later because at that point, you won't even be allowed to talk to anybody else. So in a way, they kind of have uh, a certain degree of negotiating leverage over you. So for sellers out there, it is something to be mindful of. Um, you know, the exclusivity period, like I said, is kind of one of the only parts of an LOI that, that kind of matters. And so um, an attempt to punt the important discussion points might be a buyer's attempt to talk to you under a set of circumstances um, in which they have a little bit more leverage than you do. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, you said it well, Steve, which is seller's greatest leverage is negotiating the, the LOI. That's their greatest point in the process. Once they got the price that they want in the LOI, it completely reverts to the buyer, who's of course leverage now is give me, give me, give me what I want in order for me to give you what you want, the price. So you, you couldn't have said it better. It's exactly it. The, the greatest leverage for a seller is the LOI. Selling a business can, can assume many different forms. One structural component that can change from sale to sale. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in share sales, the acquirer basically acquires the entirety of the business, including all of the liabilities, whereas in an asset sale, the acquirer can basically kind of pick and choose the assets and liabilities that they want to acquire. And in my experience, you know, generally buyers like asset sales and sellers like share sales. So as a seller, are there circumstances where sellers actually prefer an asset sale? I mean, how should business owners generally think about the asset versus share sale question? Steve, uh, as a general comment, an owner operator, who's selling their business and it's a you know, Canadian controlled private corporation. So controlled by Canadians will pretty much always want a share sale. The only time you don't want a share sale is if you, if you actually have multiple businesses out of the same company and you only just want to sell one piece of it, you know, I want to sell this business, but I actually got three businesses in the same, and then you, you can't sell the, you can't sell the shares because you'd have to carve everything else out, which is even more work. And frankly, the marketplace expects you to ask as a seller for a share deal. Okay? And so, you know, for a seller to give up a share sale, we often say, and I, I advise this to buyers when this happens, when buyers say, especially American buyers who are more used to asset sales in the lower middle market in the States, they'll often push. Yes. And I'll say, look, because as we mentioned earlier, the capital gains exemption, you can't use the capital gains exemption on, a sale, on an asset sale because of course the company gets the money, not you. And so there are real financial differences uh, to an asset sale and a share sale for a private Canadian corporation you know, owned by an owner operator. 
And I always say, fine, you know, if you, if you have a buyer who wants an asset, they'll pay me for it because it, it's going to lead to different proceeds than I would have had if I had a share. So I'm proud about for any listeners that are not Canadian and this uh, Canadian control private corporation rule does not apply to them. How should they think about the asset versus uh, share sale? So a non-Canadian wants to sell shares just because they don't want anything left over. They want to walk away. We call it giving the keys. You know, I give them the shares, I walk away. And that's, I know it's very appealing. Uh, this is where the asset sale becomes the issue in the lower middle market. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of these owner operators, they kind of got messy books. It is not unusual to have an owner operator who, uh, you know, is running uh, his or her business for 20 years, has the private club, the private school, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of personal expenses. I mean, it's, it, it happens. Like, let's just call it for what it is. These people run all kinds of stuff through their company. Now, depending on the nature of what you're running through your company, or frankly, what you should be running through your company that you're not, right? Buyers going to do their financial diligence. And if this stuff is messy, buyer's going to say, look, you know, there's a lot of tax risk here. Uh, tax risk that, frankly, if you should, didn't pay taxes, you should have paid. Uh, you know, for some buyers, I'm never going to get comfortable. I'm sorry. You obviously ran your business a certain way. You can't tell me because if I buy the share, I, I inherit your tax problems or potential tax problems. And so I will say, that probably the number one reason to do an asset sale is that, which is a lot of buyers will look at these owner-operated businesses and say, hey, I'm sorry, but you know, you've been doing a lot of funny stuff here and I can't get comfortable with buying your historical tax risk. And for that, you know, another one is environmental. Another one is real estate. Like these are issues where the potential exposure of buying the shares and getting and, and, and getting the history that comes with that is not worth it. And frankly, you would say to a seller, you know, look, I'll help you. I'll buy the shares if I don't have to take on any extraordinary historical liability. But if I do, I'm not I'm not gonna put myself at that risk. And you know, that's where the preference for the asset sale would come in because of you know, when you buy an absolutely. entire business, you assume all liabilities of that business either go forward certainly but also historical and to your point if there are unknown and or uncapped liabilities um, that the buyer simply can't be comfortable with and i suppose as a seller an asset sale is at, at the very least on the table we talked about taxes and tax structuring specifically to, and you know look that is a inevitable part of basically any sale transaction for a selling ceo so beyond the uh, considerations specific to Canadian tax law, because many of our listeners are outside of Canada, you know, generally speaking, what are some of the mistakes that you've seen CEOs make with respect to taxation and tax structuring? And if applicable, what are some things that those CEOs can do now to address some of those potential future risks? I mean, there's a lot of places we could talk about. I'll give you three quick ones, uh, Steve, that I just like low-hanging fruit. Um, uh, people are often, you know, it's a global marketplace. People are doing deals across, uh, sorry, doing transaction sales relationships across borders. Um, 
I'll, I'll give you one that's very practical for, for lower middle market companies. They start doing sales in the U.S., whether it's on the web, and it frankly tends to be on the web, uh, or it's through some mechanic. And guess what? They don't realize they're actually doing business in a jurisdiction, California being a great example. Now they're doing business in California. They don't think to themselves that they should register to do business in California. They don't think that they should be collecting sales tasks in California. And and so one of the things I would say to you is, look, when you go to a jurisdiction outside of your own, you know, it's it's you see a lot of owner, I think, oh, you know what? Come on, I'm just doing my sales. I sales will bring the back home the money. I'm not in California. Nothing doesn't apply to me. Well, actually, you know what? It could apply to you, depending on what you're doing. It may apply to you. The California, you, you may be considered to be doing business in that jurisdiction. And you may be required to pay tax there. You may be required to register there. You, you may be under the purview of that. Now you say, well, ah, come on, who's going to know? I'm just doing sales. No one really knows, except there's one problem. When you sell, the buyer knows. Their financial advisor who does diligence catches on to this stuff. They themselves say, wait a minute. It looks like you're doing business in California. And it happens a lot, Steve, where people kind of go, oh, really? I am? Uh, I never thought I was. And guess what? Then you have to deal with the exposure associated with that. Because the buyer feels like, again, wait a minute, there's historical tax liability. Why should I take it on? So keep in mind, if you're selling outside of your jurisdiction, you should be asking yourself, do I need to get myself uh, registered or uh, you know, do, do I subject myself to the rules of that jurisdiction? And I'll tell you where this plays itself out, Steve. And this is, this is the second part to that point. I'm going to go back to the advisor, right? People's businesses start to glow, grow and they're, you know, they're often using a local advisor, particularly an accountant who's got experience with local issues. And, you know, I, I like to say you grow your advisors with your business. And this is related to the first part. It's going to be related to the next part because a lot of this stuff you, you capture if you had the right advisor, right? And so the local account that doesn't understand that you're tripping over, doesn't understand that now you start to do business in other jurisdictions, you need to worry about what those jurisdictions offer. And so, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is, you know, if you're starting to do sales, in other jurisdictions and have a physical presence there. There are tax structuring issues that come up that you may want to structure for, efficient ways of doing business in those jurisdictions. If you have a good advisor, they catch on to it, right? You frankly say, listen, I want to start selling in the States. What's the best way for me to do that? Is it to the Canadian company? Should I create a US company? Do it? How, do, how should I sell in the US, right? Um, and, you know, People don't realize, for example, you go hire an employee in the U.S. to a Canadian company. Guess what? The IRS has the full rights to audit you as a Canadian company. And it kind of say that to people like, what do you mean the IRS? Well, absolutely. You're doing business in the U.S. The, you're now subject to the authority of the IRS. It kind of scares people, but that's the reality. They don't think that, oh, maybe I, made a mistake. I should have should have incorporated a U.S. company. So at least I protect my Canadian company from the, you know, the arm of a foreign tax authority. To that, Steve, it's the same idea, right? People start to grow their business and they trip up on things that because they don't have the right advice. From a legal point of view, it happens all the time, right? People end up, now we're in an IP, IT related world. I can't tell you how many times people trip up under license agreements and, 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 you know, and intellectual property agreements because as they start to grow, they don't, they forget that. You know, everything has an IP component. The big one that comes up is, as you probably know from your business experiences, 
right, Steve, is people starting to, you know, they hire people to create code or software. And, and of course, these people are pulling stuff off from left, right, and center. No one ever stops to say, wait a minute, uh, are there any rights behind any of it? Like, you know, and so what ends up happening again is you get to a sale process. This stuff starts to have some value to a buyer, and a buyer goes and looks behind it and says, where did you get the authority to do all this stuff? Or even more so, did you make sure that your employee doesn't have any intellectual property rights on, on this? Uh, and so, you know, the, these are the kind of issues that I would say, uh, Steve, they relate to how do you structure your business? How do you run it? And I ultimately come down back to my earlier point. As you grow your business, you need to evolve the advice to reflect where you're at. It's tax. So let's move on to reps and warranties, because in my experience negotiating, you know, purchases and sales, a lot of calories are burned negotiating the reps and warranty section of the purchase agreement. Um, and, you know, sellers make reps and warranties to buyers, buyers make reps and warranties to sellers, but typically sellers make more reps and warranties to buyers, often because there's a large asymmetry of information between the two parties in favor of the seller. Um, so with respect to reps and warranties, are there any frequent mistakes or stumbling blocks or you know, areas of contention when negotiating reps and warranties? Like, is there anything in particular that you think CEOs should keep an eye out for? Are there any requests from buyers that should automatically raise the red flag related to reps and warranties? Uh, one of the things that I see, I'm always mystified by this. I don't even understand how this is human, humanly possible. So when I'm on for a buyer, obviously draft Steve purchaser-friendly representations and warranties because we obviously want the seller to stand behind the business. That's why we're paying. We're paying them to stand behind their business. We ask the seller to stand behind the business. We kind of take it that the seller has gone through those reps and warranties in detail and is comfortable with the words on that page. And listen, I'm on for sellers a lot. When I work with sellers on rep and warranty, it's a slog. I, but I say to them, I need to be sure that you understand what these words mean because the only way I'm going to protect you is your counsel is to make sure that we can say stuff that's true. And one of the big flags I'll say to you is how many times I work as on the buy side with lawyers who don't actually spend the time they need to, to make sure their sellers understand the nitty gritty of the words of the rep and warrant. You know, right. You said it, Steve, rep and warrant is 30, 40 pages sometimes of a 60, 70 page purchase agreement. Right? They are the biggest part. When you look at a purchase agreement by far, by far, there's no section in a purchase agreement that's bigger than the rep and warranty section. And if anything, you know, that's the section that the buyer wears the most. Right. No one's ever going to sue the lawyer if the if the buyer, you know, oops, I didn't realize that's what it meant. That's not what you go after the lawyer for, right? Because it's going to be, well, did you read it? And they're going to assume you signed it, so you must have read it. Um, and I would say to you, you know, I would say this to a seller, you need to go through those reps and warranties in enough detail that you understand what they mean to the point of, of of high comfort, not like so related to that is, is what's called the schedules. So reps and warranties in of themselves are where you stand behind, but guess what? The exception is what you put in the schedule. The, the, the schedule is your best friend as a seller. And so another place where owner operators mistake sometimes is they think, ah, schedules, I can't be bothered to list out all my contracts. Well, guess what? If you don't, 
that's where you risk a breach. And that's not, I represent sellers. I say, give me the photocopier contract. Give me the snow removal contract. Yes, yes. Give me the contract that the sweeping floor that's $100. I want that too. Why? Because if you think about it, you don't disclose it and the buyer buys a business and they have a liability that they didn't know, they're going to say, you didn't tell me that I had this liability. Again, now if it's $100, not worth it. But you can see how you miss a material liability. They're going to say, wait a minute, I bought a business I didn't realize there was a material liability to. I want a claim. you got to make me whole. You never told me about this. So I say to people, schedules are your friends. Rep and warranty disclosures, schedules are your friends. So when it comes to reps and warranties, uh, and, and for those who aren't familiar, these are basically legally binding promises that kind of certain things are true. Um, and to your point, you know, absolutely the seller needs to err on the side of, you know, full and complete disclosure, because these are things that the buyer is relying on in making their investment decision. Now, for whatever reason, let's say that there is a breach. Um, a tool that seems to be emerging as a more popular one these days is something called rep and warranty insurance, and specifically a tool that's being used by sellers uh, with increasing frequency, it seems these days. So can you tell us what is rep and warranty insurance? And second, why would a seller ever consider using it as a tool? And Steve, I'll even add a third. Uh, this product traditionally has not been uh, used in the lower middle market, but it's becoming uh, used with frequency in the lower middle market, which makes it a, incredibly appealing for middle market owners uh, who want to sell. Um, so this product is a product that started uh, 20 years ago. Australia and the UK were really in the early um, market leaders on this. It was a product where um, insurance companies will basically provide you an insurance policy so that as a seller, remember what Steve was saying, you have to stand behind the business. And you do that by all these, these statements that you put in the 20, 30, 40 pages of a purchase agreement where you kind of say, this is, you know, this property is clean. It doesn't have contaminants. These are the contracts. You know, there's, there's no breaches. You know, you stand behind the business. Well, the insurance companies came up with a product uh, that basically says, uh, well, listen, instead of having the buyer make a claim to the owner for a breach of a rep of warranty, why don't we create a policy where the buyer will make a claim if there's a breach to the rep of warranty insurance provider, to the, to the policy? And so what it does is it replaces the need for the buyer to be on the hook for a claim under the purchase agreement, if there's a breach of one of the reps that he or she made. Um, and why it's very effective, is because traditionally, when a buyer makes reps and warranties in a purchase agreement, how they stand behind it is they have to put money in escrow, and they have to obviously put a portion of their purchase price at risk to cover a breach, right? Makes sense. You know, I breach, I breach my contractual, you got to, you know, an owner will say, well, listen, I want to put some money in escrow, because, so, you know, what happens if a buyer tries to get rid of their money so they never have to, you know, uh, worry about a situation where you sold them uh, damaged goods, you know? Uh, so there's a claim and then they go after the seller and the seller is like, the money's gone. That problem, the money's gone problem. But now uh, there's this product that's become super popular, frankly, all around the world uh, where, and it's becoming increasingly the product for these type of deals where basically 
the buyer buys an insurance policy, if the seller, when they make their, their claims in the purchase agreement, breaches them, the buyer doesn't even go and rely, uh, doesn't even go and make a claim to the sellers and rely on money put aside for those claims by the seller. Instead, it goes to the policy and only to the policy. And that's what's, what's unique. That's the evolution of it. it. used to be that it was just a first source of recovery. Now it's become the sole source of recovery. What's also interesting is, you know, traditionally this policy was used for bigger deals, uh, but now we're starting to see this policy for smaller deals. What does this really mean? A buyer buys a policy for $5 million of insurance. It costs about $150,000 uh, then it, then there's also a fee for the uh, uh, the advisors to, to have the diligence because the, the, the insurance company is going to have its own advisors. So let's say for $5 million of coverage, it's $200,000. Often it's split between the buyer and the seller, but it's actually becoming even more so now paid by the buyer as a feature to kind of make it more attractive. And so let's give you this context. Historically, if you had an owner operator do a $10 million deal, it wouldn't be unusual for them to put five to 10% of their purchase price in escrow. So half a million to a million dollars. The rep warranty insurance policy allows them not to have to put any money in escrow. So they get all their money at closing. Well, there's a potentially what's called the deductible because these policies have a deductible too, which tends to be 1% of the purchase price. So, um, but the nice advantage of these policies is one, it's now a, a, an alternative source of recovery so that the seller doesn't have to worry about claims. Two, in the old days, the seller had to put money in escrow because, of course, you know, if the buyer had a claim, they were worried about the seller running away with the money. Now, it makes deals easier to negotiate because now if a seller sees that a buyer can go after insurance instead of going after them, Right, you can see they negotiate the reps a little more lightly, whatever the word is. More, we like to say that a buyer who has a rep of warranty insurance policy is due for uh, more fulsome reps from a seller because, right, the seller doesn't have to worry. They're not going after the seller. Now they have to go after the policy. Imagine the policy in this market right now, show you how popular it's becoming. It's becoming the sole source of recovery for all general reps and even now for fundamental reps. So traditionally in these policies, it was limited to general reps. Um, and so that for general reps, you can only go after uh, the policy for fundamentals. For example, seller doesn't own his shares. You could still go after the seller. But the evolution of this product is that now a lot of people in the market are relying solely on the insurance for any claim against the seller. Yeah, and I will say it, that as somebody who used rep and warrants, so I used rep and warranty insurance in selling my company and three points that you mentioned um, represent benefits that ultimately accrued to me. So first of all, a much smaller percentage of the purchase price held in escrow. The, the only amount that we held in escrow was the amount that we thought might be needed to fund the working capital adjustment a month or two after close. So more money up front, like you said, Number two, just like a, a, a negotiation process with a lot less friction around the reps and warranties. You said, you know, accurately, reps and warranties can be 40 pages of a 70 page agreement. 
I found that relative to my experience buying a business, this negotiation was a lot faster and got kind of cleaner because we knew that the insurance policy was kind of underlying the negotiation, so to speak. And then lastly, I'd say for selling CEOs, there's a certain sleep at night factor that, you know, can't be ignored. Um, knowing that there is, you know, a safety net, if I can loosely use that term behind your reps and warranties, there is just a certain sleep at night factor that I, I found to have value as a selling CEO. Now, you you brought out one of the things that's made the policy the most attractive to sellers. It didn't, wasn't originally intended that way, um, but, we, but it kind of makes sense, Steve, which is when in the old, before rep and warranty trips, when we do a deal, we have what's called fundamental reps. And, and of course, they, they lasted forever. They were fundamental. They were of such a nature that and there's always a fight about what a fundamental rep is. But often, you know, things like tax or there would be certain, what I would call key uh, elements of a, of, a, of a business that you'd have to stand behind forever. Of course, you know where this is going to go. And owners, owners used to say, wait a minute. It means I'm never going to get comfortable with my money because you could come after me, what, 10 years, 20 years? Yes, that was the idea, right? If you, if 20 years from now, somebody comes and says, you never owned the business. If 20 years from now, Revenue Canada comes and says, you know, you had this, you already took an aggressive tax position uh, and I want, all, you know, $10 million. Yeah, we can come after you. So owners used to always say, well, I can never sleep at night now. You know, I sold you my business, but I can never enjoy my money because I don't know if you're going to come and ask for it back, right? Yeah, it was, risk was very small. But it turns out where the policy has been very attractive is getting over that hump where, especially the way it, it is now, uh, which is, uh, you know, you can say to a seller, all right, so I'll tell you what, you can walk away. We call it a walk away policy. You can walk away. You know, you could literally walk away with no liability after closing. Now, obviously, other than fraud. And sleep at night factor. So the sleep at night factor. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, moving on to kind of the deal process itself in, in the kind of small to medium sized business market, as you've alluded to, uh, either the buyer or the seller at times can look across the table and see unsophisticated legal counsel. Um, now, in your view, if you're selling a business and you're dealing with a, a buyer who has unsophisticated counsel, or if you're buying a business and you're dealing with a seller who has unsophisticated counsel, A, should you think about that as a good thing or a bad thing? And B, uh, regardless of the answer, what are some of the best practices that you've learned uh, in your personal experience when dealing with less sophisticated counsel on the other side of the table? The, the difficulty with unsophisticated counsel is that they get caught up with issues uh, in our marketplace that we would normally not consider deal issues or they want to resolve an issue that's outside of what we would call market, typical way of resolving an issue. And, and, and effective deals are done by staying within markets. And, and what, what is my market is just, you know, uh, 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 years of experience. We don't have a lot of transparency in our marketplace, but there's some studies about typical terms for deals of these size, the nature industry. And we all try to kind of play with what's good. You hear it a lot in our world. These are market terms, market terms. And you say, well, why market terms? Why? Because for those of us who work in the space, if I give you market terms, then I kind of discipline you to give me back market terms. 
that we negotiate, but within a bandwidth that's kind of accepted. Because if we don't do it that way, we get into the problem of dealing with somebody who isn't used to market or isn't, you know, um, hasn't used uh, deal terms the way we often use them in terms of repetition and seeing a lot. And what they do is they bring out points where you're like, that's not a market. And of course, the tension, like anything, is once you get outside a market, you're in the Wild West, anything goes, everything takes longer. And people start to get ground down. You know, the number one way a deal will die is just let it take so long that it dies a slow death. You know, it's not because people disagree. People think deals die because, no, they don't. They die because they take so long. People just get exacerbated and they give up, which is understandable, especially for an owner-operator who's got to run his or her business, right? At some point, they kind of just say, look, I got to get back to my, I can't, this is taking too long, you know? And, and that's where, you know, a, a lawyer who doesn't do enough of this doesn't have that experience to be able to drive the deal forward. And, 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 you know, I always say to my clients when I'm on the sell side, and I get pushed back from my clients because they'll say, I want you to fight to the end, you know? And I say, no, that's not our job. My job is to get you a deal and, and keep the money in your pocket. But at the same time, if nine out of 10 times people in this deal are giving on this term, I'm not going to fight to the end to get you something that nine out of 10 people get. Nine out of 10 buyers get this term. You know what? Five years from now, if you actually breach this, it's kind of typical that, you know, you would pay for it. It's not a fight to win every point. That's not how we, if you, if, first of all, there's three problems with that. One, that takes too long. Two, they don't want to pay for it. They kind of, if you end up doing that, it's, it's three, four times the amount of cost. And three, you know, our world is what you give if you get. You you push hard, they push hard back, that, and, and that's the problem, right? You say, I want all these little deal points that are outside of market. Guess what? They say, fine, you want to play that game. The buyer comes back to you outside of market because they say, well, you went that way, so can I. So it creates a discipline to deal for. And in fairness, the lawyer doesn't have a lot of experience, doesn't know that, and we have to manage it. So how do we manage it? You have to doubly engage. So often, you know, we don't necessarily get on calls with the lawyers from the other side. We don't, uh, 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 we don't have, you know, lawyers are working away, clients are working away, advisors are working away on a deal. But when we see that people are starting to go left and right and all over the place outside of where we need to be to get a deal done, you have to spend a lot more time, intense time with reining people in on the phone, working stuff out. Hash, if, you, if you let them go wild on you, they'll go wild on you. You have to really refocus and, and make respectful to the law. You can't, you can't, you know, I would never say to a lawyer who doesn't have experience, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't do that. That's not of fair. Course. You know what? This seller hired their advisor that's important to them. You have to kind of get them on the phone and work stuff out together. Okay, this is for you. This is for we. If you can't, this is not a finger pointing. You know that they're outside the market, but you, it's very, and you, and you gently try to say that. You know, when we do these deals, it's kind of what we are. But you can't, you can't make them, you know, you know what happens? They get defensive. They get aggressive. They turn back and say, you want to be like that? Okay. Then you, then you're really in trouble. Yeah. You mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, which was when you said the number one reason why you've seen deals fall apart is because they just take too long and all of the parties involved, you know, frankly, just lose altitude, lose steam, lose energy, you know, however you want to put it. Uh, you know, in my experience, both buying and selling that, you know, acquisitions can fall apart for basically an infinite number of reasons. Uh, they could be commercial, legal, financial, 
economic, whatever the case may be. So in your experience, you know, let's call it post LOI, what are the two or three most common reasons that you've seen deals fall apart? And is there anything that sellers can do um, to kind of manage uh, those, or, or I should say prevent those risks from happening to them? Uh, uh, number one reason why deals fall apart is it isn't legal. Uh, yeah, and I'd love to tell you it was, I'd love to think I was that important. Um, usually we can work it out. Uh, to the point, you know, to kind of full circle, Steve, to where we, to where we started, right? Players um, look at their business and they see their bottom line. They make assumptions. They don't really test the assumptions. But of course, the buyer who's going to pay you a premium is going to test the assumptions. Uh, and remember, they're, they're, they're looking at it from a, you know, gap or, or kind of financial metrics. You know, they're looking at it from an objective. Uh, and it's hard because what, when they do their financial diligence and, they, and the business doesn't stack up to their metrics uh, or some issue arises, it's very hard for a seller to understand that, you know, the nature of their business now, like the, some of the fundamentals of their business are being questioned. Um, and, and that's why I'd say the number one place where deals stop. Now, you know, some of it is completely justifiable, right? The, the buyer does their diligence and, and discovers that, you know, the revenue stream isn't as secure as it is, or the cost structure isn't as, and, and you know, sellers have a hard time with that. You know, it, it, you know people, fall in love with their purchase price in an LOI, but they forget that the buyer hasn't done their financial diligence. All their purchase prices is based on the financial statements you gave, a, a bit of data. They haven't drilled down on all the data points. And I keep saying this to sellers, you know, it's hard for them. I say, listen, people don't pay you a premium without, you know, prodding you and really pushing you and wanting to make sure this thing is real. Um, and so then, I mean, understandably so, the number one issue that I think uh, people have a hard time with on the sell side is that the, the purchase price in an LOI isn't fixed. It, yeah, it's strong in the sense that the, it's, it's um, uh, you know, it's what the buyer intends to pay, but it's subject to them doing all their work. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, see, they, they, they don't know what they don't know at the time they do the LOI. So that's the number one thing. The number two thing is Steve, and, and it, like, I can't tell sellers, what to disclose, but some, some sellers don't want to disclose things. And, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why deals dies is that there's a, a broken down trust and a buyer bases their purchase price. They base the entire rationale for the business and buying the business on trust. If you think about it, right? They don't know much at the stage of the LOI. They spend months with you. And then all of a sudden a seller who didn't tell them something has to tell them something because it comes out of the closet. Buyer finds it out on their own. So that's interesting. Here's this issue here. Why didn't you bring it up? Why didn't you tell me? Oh, I didn't think it was material. I could tell you what the buyer is going through as the buyer's advisor. They're not even caring about the issue. They're going, is this a trustworthy person? Are they holding out other stuff? Are they not telling me what I need to know? And so I would say to you, number two is trust. Seller should be like I always say to sellers, say, Mario, what should I disclose? Everything, 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 everything. I'm telling you, like I say again, you know, the snowplow contract for $50 a month, whatever. Yes, the grass cutting, the flower person who comes in once a week to spray the flower, to water the flower. Yes, 
your buyer feel comfortable that you're giving them full disclosure. If you don't, then they find out later and they think it was important. They're not going to trust you anymore. Deals die because of a lack of trust. Um, finally, peculiar enough, Steve, just a quick comment about working capital. It is still hard for sellers to understand that when they sell their business, they have to sell it with uh, enough money to keep running it. Uh, they sometimes have a hard time getting that, figuring that out. You know, they say, wait a minute, I could suck everything out before closing. Well, no, you're selling an ongoing business. It's got to be ongoing at closing with the expected amount of money that would normally be, you know, amount of working inventory and, and, and money in the business that would make it a working business. So you're not just giving the keys over, you're giving the keys over of a business that's running the same way you ran it the day before closing. Anyway, and they sometimes really have a hard time when they see a buyer uh, come back to them and say, there's a working capital adjustment that decreases the purchase price by X amount because you didn't leave me enough in the business. And and deals do die on that. And they actually die doesn't understand that he has to leave or she has to leave a certain amount of capital in the business. And, and then all of a sudden their purchase price goes down by 10% or some material amount and they say, no way, I'm out of here. But in fairness, that's a failure of the advisors, not to say that this is an adjustment that normally happens in a deal. Um, and that, that's that's another third reason. You know, it seems as if both the working capital downward price adjustment and the negative due diligence surprise ultimately leading to a purchase price adjustment. You know, if, if these are two of the three most common reasons why, why why deals die. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a lot about, you know, changes in price relative to expectations. So I actually heard a really interesting tip uh, from a book uh, I read, which I'll put into the show notes. It said, before you get to an LOI and before the purchaser has proposed a price, write down your walkaway price as the seller on a piece of paper, stick it in an envelope and hide it in your, you know, in your office desk and don't look at it. Uh, and the reason, so let's, let's use an example. Let's say it's $15 million. And then the LOI comes and actually the purchaser has proposed $20 million. So you have $5 million of upside surprise. You sign the LOI at 20 million. Then the purchaser does more diligence and says, hey, there's a tax liability that we weren't aware of. Actually, we're gonna revise the price down to 17. Now, if a business owner is kind of unprepared, they'll be very upset because now their mind is anchored on 20 and 17 is 3 million less than 20. However, a simple tool, as simple as going back to your walkaway number in your desk will show you that, hey, when you were thinking clearly and you had no cognitive biases and you weren't anchored on a number proposed by somebody else, you said that you would accept 15. 17 is actually higher than 15. This is still, assuming it's a reasonable request from the buyer, um, this is still something you should accept. So a tool as simple as that, I thought was really interesting because, you know, these negotiations are so personal. They're so exhausting. Um, they're so tiring that it's very easy to get anchored on a number like 20, even though six months ago, you would have been happy with 15. I, I you know, fundamental of deals is an owner operator who sees a number in an LOI gets, uh, gets hooked on it. And the number one issue for an owner operator is how much money am I getting at closing? If they think they're getting one thing when they sign the LOI and they're getting another thing when they close, it has a huge, huge impact on whether they do the deal or not. Huge. Another thing that I know sellers are uh, often, particularly of small and medium-sized businesses, they're worried about, hey, when I sell my business, is the acquirer going to 
terminate my employees. Often the seller has a relationship with these employees. They want to make sure that they're taken care of. But when you look at it from the buyer's perspective, you know, buyers, let's assume a share sale, they inherit the employment contracts of the existing employees, you know, most of the time, and also the liabilities associated with those employment contracts. So for example, if your company of 30 people, the average tenure is 15 years of employment, that's a lot of employment liability that the buyer is assuming. So some buyers might try some kind of creative structuring or creative mechanisms to eliminate that risk for them. So for a CEO who's considering selling and they're worried about the buyer them in such a way that they want to actually terminate their employees without actually disclosing that that's their intent. Is there anything that sellers should look out for? Uh, any kind of tricks that buyers might play or any kind of uh, curtains that they might hide behind that might actually show their intent to fundamentally. Uh, Steve, so as, as a, you know, take a step back, if you're selling your business to a buyer, I mean, they, they believe they're paying you, you know, probably a premium to be able to control the business. And so there's a tension, a fundamental tension to say, after closing, I can do what I want with, with the issue that you're talking about. I care about my employees. I want to make sure they're taken care of. There's some mechanical ways to do this. We could put in a purchase agreement, some 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 covenants that the buyer makes not to terminate people for a year. Notice I didn't say five years because the buyer's never going to agree. They're going to say, wait a minute, it's my business post-closing. But a lot of times buyers will be willing to make what I call soft covenants, soft commitments to say, for a period of time, I will, I will leave the employees the way they are. What I would say to sellers is, look, if you really care about your employees at this, at the, and you're worried about what happens to them, you really got to spend time with the buyer to understand their vision for the business. And that's the only way you're going to get what I would call the real truth out of a buyer about what their plans are. So I'll give an, I'm an example, right? You can, you can imagine if a buyer has already operations in Canada and this is what's called a bolt on, they're adding this company to their current operations. You kind of have a pretty quickly an assumption that there is going to be um, you know, some rationalization, right? Like they got two different offices. They got two different staff doing the same thing. Frankly, that's part of the justification for paying the purchase price because they're going to have savings uh, by bringing them together. Yeah? So I would say to people, you know, who are looking uh, at a buyer in a sales process and trying to figure out, are they going to take care of my employees? One, you could put something in the purchase agreement. I'm going to be honest with you. You can, you can only do so much, right? You know, they are the owners of the business post-closing. It is their business. They paid for it. They paid a premium for it. So you can do a little bit there. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes on before a deal is done in terms of conversations and relationships between a seller and a buyer, you know, and there's management presentations. And there's no, I always say this to sellers. They always say, you know, spend time with the buyer. Look deep into their eyes. Find out what they want to do with this, this you know, credible business you've created. And make sure you're aligned on their vision and their strategy and their approach. Um, and let's let's move on to the post transaction. Um, you know, a, a non compete is a pretty standard part of any sales process, and, and something that selling CEOs should expect to see uh, as one of the negotiated agreements in an exit. Um, what are some key terms that selling CEOs should keep their eyes out for when? Uh, when signing a non-compete, and are there any are there any kind of general areas that, um, let's say, you've seen CEOs agree to certain terms that they later come to regret agreeing to? Generally, what should CEOs keep an eye out for when evaluating a non-compete? 
I think the first thing CEOs got to understand is your premium for your business, right? They're not they're not buying book value, right? They're buying a premium. And you know, I have a right to tell you uh, not to compete against me, not to be involved in this business. That's what I'm paying for. They look they look at their purchase prices, including a right to tell you not to to do anything in this space. And so, you know, as a starting point, you know, I always uh, say to sellers, you know, you should be prepared to go to market to give a five-year non-compete because the buyer is paying for it. Because I think there's, no, you know, you, you get an owner-operator, especially these days, a lot of owners selling earlier than, you know, in the old, older days, they'd sell, at, you know, had a lot of owners in their 60s or 70s. But now with the tech and all the tech, you know, owners in their 40s, and they're, they're like, wait a minute, I have... Um, some ideas about things I want to do. Frankly, the reason why I'm selling is because I want to, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to do something else. And I say, look, that's fine. That's okay. We can build that into the process. You want to carve out. If there's something specific you want to do that might be, you know, tangentially related or related to the business, let's just disclose it. Let's be honest and open. But if you don't disclose it early on, then don't expect later a buyer to kind of give it to you. They're going to, they're going to. Yeah. yeah. And I would just say in my own experience, like, you know, from a seller's perspective, as you correctly point out, you have to understand and appreciate that the buyer kind of needs a certain level of comfort. And there are certain standard things that I think you should expect. So non-solicit clauses, meaning that, you know, you're not going to try to take employees uh, or you're not going to try to take customers post-close. Um, I would say a couple areas that at least are um, present some room for negotiation is, of course, the length of the non-compete. It could be three years, five years, 10 years, could be in perpetuity. I mean, this is a negotiated transaction. So theoretically, anything's possible. Um, but I would say the two areas in my non-compete that, that I paid a lot of attention to was, number one, the scope of the area um, within which I was no longer able to compete. So for example, in, in my instance, I'm no longer allowed for the next five years um, to operate within a particular vertical of the software market. But it doesn't mean that I can never <clears throat> work in any software vertical. So, you know, how do you define this scope of the area in which you can no longer compete? And then also, um, what are the things that you're no longer allowed to do? So, if you're not allowed to found another company, can you be an advisor? Can you be a board member? Can you be an investor? Um, these things are all negotiated, but those are two areas for me that I think CEOs should pay attention to because uh, they do present, I would say, a bit more gray area than something like a non-solicit clause. Well, like, you, you hit on the key points, but you, you, you gotta bring those points up early. You gotta be clear and you gotta, you gotta be precise. You, you, you know, I've seen owner operators try to get carvels and non-competes that are too generic and they, they just scare a buyer. Right? You know, if you're getting too close to the bone, a buyer's going to say, what am I paying for? It sounds like you're going to come after me, right? That's what they start thinking. So, you know, for those sellers who want to kind of keep in the space, be specific, like you said, be detailed and tell it like people, people generally are okay. If you're not, if you're not competing in an area that goes to the core revenue, if you want to do something, but it's really non-material or it's not going to, you know, ultimately go, like, what are they, what is a buyer worried about? You're going to go after core revenue. You're going to hinder their growth. You're going to, you're going to hyphen off stuff. As long as you can frame it in a way that's not going to do that, 
But again, don't bring it up at the end. A lot of times I, I say to sellers, like if you're bringing it up at the end, something's wrong because it creates a perception that you're holding out on something. And I agree with that. Like, it's kind of weird if you really wanted to do something in the space and you, you bring it up a few weeks before closing, it kind of makes buyers very nervous. Yeah. Um, yep. So yep. bring it up early, be clear, do your homework and say to a buyer, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm looking for. You on board. So last uh, last question for you, Maria, before we conclude, uh, it's a bit of an odd one, uh, but hopefully you can think of an answer. If, if you could shout one thing from the proverbial mountaintops and every entrepreneur and CEO of every small and medium-sized business in the world could theoretically hear what you've said and fully digest it, what, what would you say and why? And Steve, what I love about some of the stuff you know, we've known each other for many years. What are, you, what are you focused on? And I know you and I have talked about this, which is creating educational forums for owner operators, uh, or CEOs of SMBs to have uh, uh, data points, knowledge. Uh, one thing we don't have in Canada in the lower middle market and the middle market spaces is uh, enough information for owner operators, right? There's in the U.S., they have a slew of it. Like, it's incredible. They have so many different... No, it's because it's a bigger market and they just do more deals, generally speaking. Uh, and I would say to owner-operators that the, and CEOs, the best thing you can do in this space is look out for like-minded people who are, because it's not a big community. You, you really got to go out and look for them and learn from them because there is no 101 course, you know? I mean, you're doing some great stuff, Steve, to kind of... Uh, add, uh, you know, education and innovation and ideas to the market. But I mean, that's the reason why you're doing it, Steve. That's why you and I do what we do, right? We try to get out there and give owner operators the tools. And I would say to owner operators, there is no one place to go, which means you kind of got to go and build out a network. Uh, you know, what's one of the things I say to, to owner operators are looking at selling is, one thing you got to start doing now is start talking to other sellers, people who've sold before you. It's a community. It's out there. You got to find them. You got to ask your friends. I mean, you're in the, ask your advisors. I want to meet, I mean, I've done that. People, my clients have said, listen, Mar, I'm selling my business. Can you introduce me? You know, listen, what do you think? I said, talk to some other sellers. I'll introduce you to some. They're, they'll be happy to talk to you. It's a small community. Knowing what they went through is huge for you. And you can't do enough of that. Talk to, and frankly, Every advisor will talk to you for free uh, to give you some ideas. Do your own, um, almost create your own educational course. <laughs> Go out there, start taking notes, learning, be always learning. Right? Because the sad part is there is no place you can go for a course. You got to go roll up your sleeves, get in there. And people sometimes underestimate how many people they know who can add valuable advice on selling a business. You know, I always say, man. Your commercial banker, your lawyer, your accountant, people you know, your friends. If you say to them, I'm thinking about some ideas of people I can talk hey, Number one thing you should be doing is talking to other people who've done it and, and who uh, are working in this space and asking them. And then what you do is you start to see a thread. And you're looking for the threads, right? Where people start to tell you similar things. Okay, you know what? I've talked to a lot of people. They all seem to say the same thing. I must be on to something here. That's how we all learn. Um, that's what market is, and that's what I recommend owner operators do. Um, you you should not be talking to people 
the day you want to be sell your business. You'd be talking to people years before you want to sell your business and building up a network and relationships and good supports. And, and it's going to make this so much better and it's going to protect your assets so much better. Yeah, so true, especially because, you know, most entrepreneurs will only ever sell a business once in their life if they're lucky. So almost everybody by definition is inexperienced and the most expensive mistakes you can make are mistakes that you make firsthand might as well learn from other people's mistakes instead of your own. And of course, as you stated a few times uh, already in our conversation today, start early, uh, start well before you ever contemplate selling, even if you're never contemplating selling, you should still operate the business as if you are. Mario, thank you so much for your time and for your experience today. We really appreciate it. Steve, thank you for having me and, and thank you for all the work you're doing to you know, really raise the flag for the, the community. Uh, it's just greatly appreciated. I mean, like I said, I just don't think there's enough data points and information for CEOs and owner operators in the lower middle market and the middle market. And the more that you do, the more it helps all of us. So thank you. Awesome. Thank hey guys, Steve here. Just a few final reminders before you take off today. Remember that you can check out the show notes from today at inthetrenches.net forward slash podcast, where I include a list of all of the questions that I asked today, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discussed, and finally, a written transcript of our discussion that you can download to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Lastly, if you are so inclined, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a quick rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you happen to listen to In the Trenches. More and better ratings help me attract better guests, which I ultimately hope will benefit you. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.